This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you today? Good to be catching up. And between now and... Well, the news headlines at half past 12. You're going to catch up with the head of WA's Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, who's saying that it might be time just to have a look at lowering the age limit for MC, multi-combination licence holders, just to ensure that there are enough truck drivers around once the grain harvest kicks in and all that grain is coming off the farm and needing to be delivered to the bins around the state. Also today you'll meet WA wool grower Neil Jackson who says a digital wool selling system is a must for a modern industry and he's confident the platform WoolQ is here to stay. You'll hear from him uh, just before heading off to the Mushay sheep market before the news at one o'clock. This is the Country Hour, six past 12. Recent operational and staff changes at a quarantine station near Kalgoorlie, about four hours east of Perth, has raised a series of biosecurity concerns. Now, this station is on the front line of protecting the state against unwanted pests and diseases. Reporter Emma Field has been following the story and is with you now from the ABC's Esperance studio. Emma, when did concerns about this facility first come to light? G'day, g'day, Belinda. About a month ago, the long-time quarantine manager at Kargoorlie, Brian Bilgori, died. And the industry say within two days, the Department of Primary Industries, who oversee that station, reversed some allowances that Bilgori had offered to interstate truck drivers. These include offering flexible operation hours, outside of business hours, and also allowing the truck drivers to stay at the quarantine station in special quarters. So what's the significance of this particular station? Look, that station was established there about seven years ago. And interestingly, it's on donated land from Woolabar Station. And the industry also donated a lot of other household items in those that truckies accommodation I talked about, such as beds and furniture. Now, in terms of the station's purpose, well, it's a key part of WA's the WA government's biosecurity plan to keep invasive pests and weeds as well as unwanted animal diseases out of the state. So they've got livestock yards there for animals to be watered and rested and then quarantine officers obviously inspect the animal for any biosecurity issues. And some animals incidentally also drench there to um, for d- disease prevention as well. Now, all trucks that go in there also are required to be extensively washed. Again, that's part of pre- preventing the spread of problematic weed seeds and the like. And that process alone of washing the trucks can take um, five to six hours for some of those bigger trucks. So it's a pretty important part of protecting WA agriculture against the costly and potential devastating pests and disease that could come into the state. And look, despite COVID closing the borders to interstate visitors, the flow of livestock into the state really hasn't stopped. So cattle, sheep, alpaca and horse sales are still happening. So, you know, livestock come in for that. And the horse racing industry is also still operating. So the station is really more important than ever. All right. So what are the key concerns coming from industry? 
So the interstate truck companies that operate, um, they transport not only commercial sheep and cattle, but also stud stock, you know, really expensive stud stock and expensive racing horses. They say these changes will impact animal welfare and their ability to manage driver fatigue in these long-haul livestock movements. Let's hear from Nunagate-based Doug Giles from Silver Transport. Animal welfare is our biggest issue. Like we can aim to try to be at that quarantine quarantine centre at, at a certain time, but when we do multiple pickups, multiple drop offs, we can lose three quarters an hour every pickup drop off as we go around. So we we do our best to make sure we get there within re- reasonable hours. And the other thing is we push as hard as we can to get to that quarantine centre to get our animals back off. Like the horse transporters and ourselves, we actually feed and water our animals on the truck to our best of our ability. But obviously we can't cart a lot of feed and water around. So we've got enough to get us and to push through to Kalgoorlie to get them back on feed and water where we know we have feed waiting for us. So that's our main concern is just trying to get our livestock like we're But it worth a lot of money, so we have to have a lot of respect to our clients to make sure we do our best job that we can. And the issue with the accommodation, do you think that it's reasonable that the government says you can't stay there anymore? Why? That's all I say is why. Like, we get in there, it takes us two hours to unload our B-double that we operate with and and to get those animals back on feed and water and make sure we've got them pinned so nothing can go wrong. The other thing people haven't commented about is once we come through Border Village, we actually got a piece of paper that, that tells us we must go straight to quarantine. Now, that's the, the truck and the, and the livestock. So to say that we go in there and unload, we've unloaded, we've disturbed all the seeds and whatever and the manure on our trucks, then to say we leave quarantine and we're dirty and we go off the premises, it's actually breaking quarantine rules. Interstate truck business owner Doug Giles there. Now, the industry are also annoyed these changes have been made without any warning and just before their busiest month of October. So, Emma, what's been the government's response to this? WA Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan has defended the changes, saying they are not in the business of running a backpackers for truck drivers. Generally, there is an expectation that uh, you come to these facilities during the, the times that it is open. Now, really, there's been no change in the regulations around this, but what is quite clear is that there has been a change of management and uh, a new quarantine inspector has uh, has arrived and has discovered that there are many informal arrangements, including using the office basically as a DOS house, one might say. So it's become a accommodation unit for truckies, which obviously was not known by the the management of the department. I'm sure it's been done for good reasons. Now, what the new management has sought to do is to have the facility comply with the actual requirements and regulations. A new inspector has come in. They, in their view, have identified, and quite clearly, particularly in relation to the accommodation arrangements, some unacceptable practices. I think there's a place now to sit down and talk to industry. We would love to hear from the industry about what were they getting in the past and what is it they want. 
Agriculture Minister Elena McTiernan. 12 past 12 on ABC WA. This is the Country Hour and Emma Field is here this afternoon just telling you about some of the biosecurity concerns that have been raised by the trucking industry about a quarantine station near Kalgoorlie. Emma, since this story has come to light, a former Deep Herd quarantine officer has come forward just to say that he's had long-standing concerns about the border quarantine operations well, for many years now. What specifically is he talking about? Gary Hodgen is a former biosecurity livestock inspector. He oversaw quarantine operations at Kununurra, Kalgoorlie and the Perth Airport until 2013 when he took a redundancy. Gary said he left out of frustration about the lack of funding and resourcing for the border quarantine operations and in particular the lack of training of staff to man the border biosecurity operations which all started when the department restructured about a decade ago. The main concerns was when they did a, a transfer of the whole border biosecurity livestock operation from the Animal Health Veterinary Services Livestock Biosecurity area to the quarantine area where there was no veterinary advice, there was no understanding of the requirements for uh, livestock transport interstate and just no appreciation of the competencies and skills required to carry out those functions. What expertise do you think staff need at quarantine stations and within that inspection side when they are trying to keep pests and invasive pests and diseases out of WA? Well, it's a very comprehensive set of competencies, skills and experience, which no university gives a a course in, in what's necessary. So there are very few people that can handle all species of livestock, can recognise all prohibited weeds and invasive species and can administer treatments to animals and and, um, take samples as well as operating stockyards and um, animal handling facilities. So how did you propose when you were with the department that that be done for staff? Well, when when it was um, being managed the project being managed by veterinary officers. There was courses in livestock handling, in the operation of livestock handling equipment uh, that were coordinated mainly at Murdoch University, but the low-stress handling of of livestock, there was some recognised courses that stock inspectors could do. One of the veterinary officers who managed the project said that because of occupational safety and health concerns and for the standard of of service delivery, no one without adequate training and supervision should ever be allowed to inspect livestock or operate the um, stockyards. And do you believe there are staff that don't have those relevant qualifications and training inspecting stock now? Well, that's one of my main concerns is that with the the passing of, of Senior Stock Inspector Brian Gorry, who we all called Bill, who had all the skills required, all the appeals to the quarantine section for succession planning, training, just left the department in a an embarrassing pickle because there was no recognition of the need. Because they didn't understand, they thought that you could get a circus monkey that had failed the trick program to to go and operate the stockyards. And now 
my main concern is that with no one up there that knows what they're doing, the whole biosecurity and inspection strategy has been compromised, but it also puts the poor unfortunate staff who are asked to do it in a position where they are vulnerable to potential occupational safety and health issues. You raised these concerns with uh, the Agriculture Minister, Alana McTiernan, back in 2017. You also say, said in that letter that there are four highways into the state of WA which have no biosecurity surveillance. Which roads are you talking about? There's the Duncan Highway, which that leads into the checkpoint at Kununurra. People can turn left off that, go down through the Northern Territory, running parallel to the WA Northern Territory border, and come in through Halls Creek. Then there's the Buntine Highway, which I think from memory comes from Tennant Creek, which comes straight across from the Territory into WA via Halls Creek. Then we've got the Central Desert Highway and the Tanamise. They have signage and they have honesty bins. We'd find that no one uses them. And if someone does, if the discarded fruit and vegetables or whatever was any good, the locals would quickly retrieve it and make use of it. There was no permanent surveillance whatsoever for those four points. There was just signage. Former Senior Livestock Quarantine Officer Gary Hodgen, who has also continued to lobby the government about his concerns since he left the department. The Agriculture Minister's office says the new Livestock Inspector at the Kalgoorlie Quarantine Station is an authorised officer and has undertaken training for livestock handling. It also says DPIRD is continuing to investigate the use of CCTV cameras on remote highways. However, high-risk roads are managed with 24-hour-a-day checkpoints. 18 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. And it's great to have you along this afternoon. News headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology around about half past 12 today. First, though, could a new grower group unite the whole of the southern rangelands? This is from Carnarvon to the Nullarbor. It is a big area. It is an ambitious plan. But already 62 pastoralists have registered for a meeting at Mount Magnet next month just to try and figure out how an organisation like this could work and what they could all get out of it. One of the people organising the meeting is Debbie Dowden. She's from Challa Station, just near Mount Magnet. We've missed out on a lot of opportunities as a result of not having a coordinated, cohesive body in this region. And if we can pull together the small groups that are scattered throughout the huge area of the southern rangelands, pull them together into one group, employ an executive officer to oversee and to assist with funding and developing capacity and developing business and production, then the southern range lands will ultimately benefit quite significantly from that. So have you been a bit splintered in the past? What do you think has held back this region? Uh, I think that the geographical distances have held back the region. We're talking all the way out into in the Nullarbor to right across the coast to Carnarvon area. So it's a huge area. And the fact that it's so hard for people to travel and get to face-to-face meetings, but obviously now with technology the way it is and people more accepting of online meetings, then that 
probably is a little bit of a thing that will work in our favour in order to be able to get this group growing. The other thing that we've got is we've got great support from the Minister at the moment and there's a lot of support from industry and agriculture and, and Walrick and, and there's a lot of opportunities right now that the southern rangelands can actually jump on top of if we take the time to really form a, a really strong, cohesive grower group. What are your key, the key projects or the key opportunities that you really want to get achieve? Oh, there's, there's so many, um, but the key opportunities that we need to pick up on are, are how carbon can develop pastoral properties, how carbon projects, the funding that we can get from them can develop our pastoral businesses, what sort of research and development opportunities we can jump into with the southern rangelands. With, a lot of us are moving to cattle away from sheep and into cattle now and we really don't know best management. We don't know what the cattle eat. We do, we, there's so much we don't know. And there's opportunities for ag tech like virtual fencing. There's so many opportunities. And, of course, the rangelands rehabilitation is a big thing. Without a good environment and, a, a, you know, water flow control and things like that, you can't grow feed, so you can't grow animals. So it all comes down to caring for the rangelands and rehabilitating any damaged areas as the basis of a really strong pastoral business. Will it also be about access to water? Access to groundwater is definitely something that we've, we're very interested in looking at. And if we can have a one body coordinating a big study that goes throughout the region and to actually look deeply into the possibilities of having those, um, tapping into the underground water and having some irrigation projects here, that would be massive. It would be such a game changer for this region. How does this area compare to, say, the Kimberley in terms of getting projects done, in terms of lobbying? Um, because they seem to have quite a strong pastoral group in the Kimberley and Pilbara. The, the southern rangelands is... I've heard it once likened to being the Siberia of agriculture. We're just completely forgotten about. We're just not on the radar. The, uh, in the past, a lot of the development opportunities have occurred in the Kimberley and the Pilbara region or in the southwest. And there's this big gap in the middle of Western Australia that is is almost the the yeah the forgotten country. And I think that one of the reasons is that we don't have that cohesive grower group to to push for funding and to push for R&D opportunities and to really get everybody together and singing from the same hymn sheet. Debbie Dowden, she's from Chalice Station near Mount Magnet and speaking to Cecile O'Connor. The roundtable meeting is scheduled for Friday the 2nd of October at the Mount Magnet Racecourse from 10 o'clock. And if you do plan to go along, you do need to register your interest and you can contact Debbie or Ashley Dowden just to put your name down for that. 23 past 12. Uh, here on the Country Hour, you and I have been talking about this for a while now, the labour shortage issues for a whole range of industries in the agricultural sector and all sort of plans and networks being developed just to ensure that everyone's got enough people um, on the job to get the harvesting of fruit done, uh, the harvesting of the grain done. And there's so many jobs in between there that really you need to get those numbers. And with all the borders closed and staff who usually come from interstate or overseas, well, every industry is really looking locally to get as many people on deck as they possibly can. And yesterday on the Country Hour, you heard from WA grain grower Danny Sanderson 
who was saying that he's just really worried that there won't be enough experienced truck drivers for the season's harvest. Road train operators is going to be the biggest one to fill. Um, MC licence is going to be 25 years old before you can be fully qualified. So it takes a lot of the younger people out. So, um, yeah, that's, that's going to be difficult for transporting the grain. Danny Sanderson, who farms at Grass Patch, just north of Esperance. He's also president of SEPWA, the Southeast Premium Wheat Growers Association. And Danny, just telling you about there being that shortage of multi-combination or MC licence holders in the state and across Australia at the moment. The head of WA's Livestock and Rural Transporters Association has a, a suggestion, a possible solution to some of those concerns that Danny and, and others, of course, have, and that is to lower the legal driving age for truck driver licences. Uh, President David Fife says more practical, structure and on-the-job training will also be key to tackling this issue over the longer term. I believe the age at at which a young person can obtain a licence is too high because if they could start off in their motor car licence a bit earlier, would open up the chance of these people joining our industry in uh, Europe Many, many years ago, 30 years ago in Sweden, for instance, people were driving at 15 and 16-year-old in motor cars, but the car had to have top gear taken out of it. So they've come a long way and we've gone nowhere. We've still got the same age that we've had for a long time. If you could have the the age of getting your C-class licence younger, then you could address some of the issues around the age that you're saying is too high to be able to get, for example, your MC. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. If we if we could get the young people on the road a bit earlier, even if it is with a lot of restrictions, and get them schooled up, that would then get them closer to getting into the MC licence at an earlier stage and possibly just trim up a couple of the rules where you've had to have a car licence for three years and a truck licence for one year. At four years, as it takes people quite often to 21 years old, and we lose them in that time. What would you like to see happen? What we'd like to see is the chance to upskill these people. Like the government have proposed a uh, TAFE course down in Collie, and that is already underway, and there's nine applicants have been accepted, and that's been filled up. We'd like to see it go a little bit further, join up with a, a driving school who would be able to take some of these students and teach them because it is very expensive to get a heavy vehicle licence. It can cost over $2,000. If that was part of this TAFE course where they had some opportunity to learn even something as simple as changing a tyre on a vehicle, Mm. lots and lots of companies, big companies, won't allow their drivers to change a tyre. Well, in the rural community, if uh, if if you get a flat tyre, you you can't ring the tyre man and get him just to pop out and do it, especially if it's nine o'clock at night on a country road. So there's a lot of skills that could be incorporated into this collie system, and then we would also propose the younger people, or well, at, at any age, after two years, there should be a competency course, and then they would need to have an experienced operator 
travel with them for a certain amount of hours and then they would need to travel with one of the operator's trucks, like, you know, just hop in behind and tottle along behind and maybe have a, a, a radius, like a 150-kilometre radius of your base. So a bit Most like an L-plater system that you get when you get your C-class driver's licence. Yes, now, of course, there are fears at the moment around a shortage, a skills shortage, particularly given everything that's going on with COVID. Do you think that these kind of measures and maybe reducing the amount of time that it takes to train would help address some of those problems? Well, with COVID, it has thrown up a whole pile of, um, I guess you'd say, new barriers and there's not a lot is going to be able to be done to help out the driver shortage for, say, the coming harvest because it's just got too close. But in future, yes, if there was more traineeships, more skill available before people came to apply to transport operators so that that basic training and understanding could be done in a classroom environment, gee, it takes six months out of having them out in the workforce and it would speed it up no end. Now... Just finally, I am very interested with the shortage of truckies in WA at the moment. You're going to be telling your son, Nathan, it's time to help out properly for a few months. Will we see him pulling up to some CBH bins or up to the sale yards? Well, I've, I've had great concerns that each year he normally goes overseas and has a break and a chill out. And he actually rang the other day and just said, well, Looks like I'll be coming home to give you a hand. So um, he's offered. I haven't had to say it. So mm-hmm. the only thing is he does ridicule the, the truck that I drive is quite old and uh, and it's still got a cassette <laughs> player in it. Oh, um, cassette player. So, so he doesn't quite understand that technology. So I don't know how I'm going to get around it. Um, <laughs> I might have one of those old Walkmans that I used to have that I could lend him. <laughs> so the answer is he'll be back to help us. In what category, I don't know whether he'll be doing a bit of stock or a bit of bulk or something. But um, I'm, I'm yeah, keen to know, how does he go reversing a double trailer? Pretty good, yeah. Well, as I said, my kids, my boys have been doing it on farms and that since, you know, since they've been quite young. So, yeah, no problem. Who's better at reversing a trailer, you or Nathan? Oh, hard question. He's got an older brother who, who makes a pair of us look like learners when going backwards. <laughs> I have to be very careful here because, you know, over the Christmas table, it could get a bit heated. (laughs) WA Livestock and Rural Transporters Association President David Fife talking about his sons, uh, one of whom is Nat, the current Fremantle Dockers captain. And I wonder if you noticed that Nat Fife didn't arrive back in Perth yesterday with the rest of the Dockers team. He's decided to stay on in North Queensland for another week just exploring. Uh, So, Dad... Don't hold your breath for when he will finally be back driving your truck and um, working out the cassette technology. This is the Country Hour 29 to 1. Off to the newsroom. What's happening, Jonathan Beale? Thanks, Belinda. The Premier says a decision by South Australia to open its border to New South Wales does not place additional pressure on WA to open its border. South Australia will implement the change from midnight. Mark McGowan says WA will proceed with caution when it comes to its border, which has been closed for months. Official Year 12 Leavers celebrations will go ahead in Western Australia in late November with both the Dunsborough Party Zone and Meal Up Beach Party 
given the green light. Police say safety plans are still being devised, but COVID marshals will patrol the areas to make sure social distancing and hygiene measures are maintained. And the Federal Energy Minister denies the coalition is picking winners in its so-called technology roadmap to bring down the nation's carbon emissions. The plan focuses on investment in areas such as hydrogen and low-carbon steel rather than renewable energy generation through solar and wind. Angus Taylor argues those technologies have matured to a stage where they don't need as much support. More news coming up, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Jonathan. 27 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. And just a few texts coming through. If you've got something to say, this is the text number. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Just moments ago, hearing from a David Fife, who's the head of the Livestock Transporters Association here in WA, trying to come up with some ideas around uh, how to approach a shortage of truck drivers in the state, especially as um, the industry, the grain industry, approaches harvest time. We've got to get that grain from farm to the bins. Uh, Salty Matt says, I think the trucking industry needs to take some responsibility for the shortage of drivers as well. For years, they wouldn't employ people unless they were experienced because of the high cost of the insurance premiums. When a driver doesn't have many hours, how do you get experience if no one gives you a job? And also this question on grain prices through from Kate in Cranbrook. Could you get one of your grain experts on to explain why feed barley has done the opposite to what they and the merchants said it was going to do again, currently sitting at $250 a tonne and climbing? Well, are you a grain expert, analyst? What is the answer to that question? Shoot it through. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. It'd be great to hear from you. Between now and the news at one, the results of the sheep market, John Testro going through the details of the Muche market today. And also a closer look at the online wool selling platform Q Wool, which was developed by Australian Wool Innovation. Yesterday you heard from the Australian Wool Growers Association not so keen on the idea of this online selling platform and wants AWI to get rid of it. Today you'll hear from a WA wool grower who says this is a great thing, the industry needs this if it wants to be a modern industry into the 21st century. First, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Pete Clegg, what's happening in the Southwest Land Division? Wrong line. I think I've got you now, Pete. What's happening in the Southwest Land Division? Can you hear me, Pete? Yeah, sure can. Oh, Sorry. I've got you now. No, it's all my fault. <laughs> uh, take us through the Southwest Land Division. Uh, well, I suppose we had a weak front move over the Southwest last night, and uh, that sort of stalled up around the sort of Perth area and into the northern parts of the Great Southern and lower, uh, southern parts of the Central Wheat Belt. It's brought some pretty light showers through most of those areas. Uh, and it's still quite cloudy through that area. But uh, apart from that, there's a little bit of onshore flow still persisting down around the Esperance region, and that's causing a few showers uh, today as well. But for the most part, what we expect over the next 24 hours is for the ridge to become the dominant uh, weather feature. That 
drifts down to the south over the uh, very southern parts of the southwest land division. And then we start to see a trough develop down the west coast uh, from tomorrow. And so what we'll see is a, a gradual increase in temperatures, uh, pretty dry conditions uh, throughout as well. Uh, we do have the slight chance of some very high base thunderstorms in northern parts of the southwest land division on Thursday. And they drift a bit further south on Friday. Basically, we see a low-pressure system develop in, uh, in the base of that trough offshore from the west coast on Thursday, and then that drifts further south on Friday, anywhere sort of uh, to the, in the northwestern parts of the southwest land division, so sort of in the central west uh, and northern parts of the central wheat belt and northern parts of the lower west on Friday. They're likely to be in westerly flow, so it's sort of showery conditions, particularly about the coastal parts. Not very much rainfall. It's going to be very light. But in the southern parts of the southwest land division, still on the southeastern side of the trough there, uh, there is still a bit of instability around. So we could continue to see some high base thunderstorms. Again, I'm not going to promise very much rain for any farmers out there because it does look like it's going to be pretty high base. There could be a few mills in it. Uh, but at this stage, I wouldn't be saying there's going to be much more than that, particularly through the wheat belt. Uh, and then by the time we get to Saturday, uh, look, it's, it's a very spring-like pattern that we've got coming along and, and that trough gradually pushes further to the uh, to the east. Uh, we go more onshore through the southwest land division. There is quite a bit of uncertainty about rainfall. Uh, it looks like through the majority of the southwest land division there will be a bit, maybe not so much in the northern parts, but particularly through uh, western parts of the Great Southern, the Lower West, the Southwest District and the South Coastal District. Uh, there does look to be a bit of rainfall in it by the time we're getting to Saturday, but like I say, it, it's a very spring-like pattern, so I'm definitely not promising too much out there for the farmers. Uh, uh, otherwise, um, yeah, the windy conditions will be the main thing over the next couple of days, I suppose, for the northern parts of the southwest land division in particular. Uh, those east to northeasterlies, particularly through the central west, will be quite fresh tomorrow morning and into Thursday morning, pushing a little bit further south as well. Okay, now you usually come on and you promise rain. So <laughs> just getting used to that and you're making it very clear that you're not promised. I heard that a couple of times, so message delivered. Thank you for that. Taking well, a look at – um, yeah, go on. I know that it's right at the sort of time of the season now that they're really wanting a bit of finishing rain and I just don't want to get any particularly large hopes going that there's going to be anything significant. But, yeah, uh, a little bit in the rain gauges here and there will, will most likely occur by the end of the weekend. All right. That's loud and clear. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> uh, northern and eastern parts, Pete, what can you see? Uh, well, there's been a bit of thunderstorm activity in southern parts of the Kimberley uh, overnight and into this morning. That's just with a high-level trough through those parts. Uh, and it is starting to look like we'll start to see a bit more afternoon and evening shower and thunderstorm activity up through northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley as a fairly routine feature pretty much uh, for the rest of the week. So uh, that looks like that's going to start happening. With the ridge being the dominant feature over the southern parts of the state, the other thing that will be the case is that it's very uh, easter, easterly winds, uh, very strong easterly winds, particularly in the morning through the uh, Gascoigne, Pilbara and northern interior tomorrow. Uh, we'll see some elevated fire danger ratings through the west northwestern Gascoigne and probably a bit of dust around there as well. Uh, and then uh, I suppose uh, once we get into Thursday with the traffic uh, deepening a bit further and, and pushing inland and we see the, the risk of high-level thunderstorms through the Gascoigne as well, uh, it's still going to be windy as well. So we'll have elevated fire danger ratings, uh, dry thunderstorm risk and a bit of dust around through the Gascoigne, particularly in the southern parts. 
uh, and uh, and it's going to be just broadly fairly windy anywhere on the eastern side of the trough. So by the time we get to Friday, that trough uh, is sort of lying uh, fairly close to the border between the Gascoigne and Goldfields and then extending up into the interior. So on the eastern side of that, it'll be fairly fresh uh, east to north easterly winds and on the other side, uh, much lighter southerly. So uh, a bit of relief by the time we get to Friday for the Gascoigne there. Uh, there could be just some very light showers that creep into the southwest Gascoigne on the Friday with that westerly flow as well, so around the Shark Bay area. But again, it's it's only going to be sort of 0.2 to 0.4 millimetres, I think, if they get anything in a gauge at all. Uh, and then that uh, thunderstorm activity that's uh, around on the Thursday pushes down into the uh, gold fields on the Friday and is pretty persistent through uh, a lot of the gold fields, South Interior and the Eucla by the time we're getting into Saturday. Again, it's very high base stuff. I don't expect there to be very much rainfall in it, but certainly the chance of some rumbles here and there and, and a little bit of more interesting cloud around, I suppose, if, if nothing else. Rob has just texted through, Pete, and is telling you to grow a pear and, and put your house on it. Uh, okay, well, for a start, the bank owns my house, so I can't. Um, and <laughs> spring-like patterns have burnt every forecaster in the office well and truly before, and I'm sure they've burnt every farmer in the in the industry before because they're so unpredictable. And uh, I hate to say it, but I won't be uh, won't be putting a house on on this one today. Sorry, Rob. All right, you stick to your story. Any warnings today? Uh no, actually, we've, we've just cancelled all the strong wind warnings for the north coast. And, and yeah, the fire weather warning will be up there for the Gascoigne for tomorrow. But right now, we're all clear. Nice work, Pete. Thank you for that. This is the Country Hour and it's 18 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio now to go through the rainfall figures. Yeah, in the last 24 hours, no rainfall at or above five mils in the northern and eastern forecast districts. And in the southwest land division forecast districts, not a heap to get through. In the lower west, Waruna had nine. In the southwest, Aldervale had 10 mils over four days. Beetle up six. Brunswick Junction had five. Kawaram up and four acres also had five. Logebrook, 10. Margaret River, seven. Mount William, nine. Northcliff, eight. Pemberton, five. Rosabrook, six. Williabra, seven. Yanmar, five. And then in the southern coastal region, Beaumont West had five and Erin Air had nine. Just quickly, you know how David Fife was talking about how he's got a cassette player in his truck? No, I'm not going to be talking about Nat, thank you very much. I, rolling your eyes. <laughs> Hearing about having a cassette player in your truck took me back to when I was uh, travelling through Europe and I was working in uh, the mountains in the north of Italy and we were employed by the local farmers to pull out some non-native weeds. Most boring job in the world, but... Uh, my mate and I had a conversation that must have lasted two hours. He was in, he was saying cassettes are definitely better than CDs, and I was on the flip side. Amazing the conversations you have when you're absolutely bored stupid. You know, <laughs> I mean, this technology is coming back. Our 15-year-old daughter, her birthday, the, the one thing she wanted was a record player. So mm. now I'm in the shops buying all this vinyl for like $50 a pop. Oh, that's got an argument. Vinyl's got quality. <laughs> Cassette is just a stupid argument. Richo, if you're listening, I'm still right and you're wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Uh, this is The Country Hour, ABC WA. It is 17 to 1. A few texts through, too, on the shortage of truck drivers. Jason, who's a southwest truckie, says, I'm an MC driver. I believe the best way to get drivers is to make getting your HR and MC licence cheaper. 
I put it off for years because of the price. Now I wish I did it earlier. I love driving and my job. If anyone is thinking of getting their licence, do it. It's worth it, says Jason. And also this, on the biosecurity concerns you heard about earlier in the hour, uh, these concerns coming up at the Kalgoorlie quarantine station. And Ray Marshall from the Grain Biosecurity Advisory Committee says he just had a listen to that report earlier on the country hour on biosecurity. Grain grower representatives have for some time been lobbying for more biosecurity checks at unattended road access into WA. It is imperative biosecurity to protect WA's agriculture, including the five to seven billion dollar WA grain crop, is non-negotiable. Prevention is way better than cure, says Ray. This is the Country Hour. It's quarter to one. And how is this for recycling? Western Australia is launching a project to recycle food waste using flies. Now, the plan is the flies come in on this food waste and then that fly larvae is fed to farmed prawns. The WA government likes this idea. It's committed almost $100,000 towards this waste-not-food recycling facility that's going to be built in the tourist town of Broome. Now, it might sort of put you off a little bit hearing about this project, But the founder of the project, an insect farmer, Lauren Bell, can't wait to start producing black soldier fly maggots. I guess it depends on your uh, tolerance for (laughs) maggots, but I obviously don't find it disgusting. Um, I see it really as a future industry that, you know, one day there'll probably be a fly farm in every town. So our our reluctance and ick ick factor, I suppose, will be overcome. I know you've got a bit of a demonstration here for us, but... A fly farm, what does that even look like? So it's much more contained than people think. So we don't have swarms of flies, you know, uh, overrunning the Kimberleys, or they won't be. Uh, I basically breed a certain type of fly, which is a non-pest species. So the adult doesn't have a mouthpiece, so they don't bite or transmit disease. Uh, And they're kept in enclosed aviaries just for breeding. Uh, But it's really the larvae that are the powerhouse. Um, So they... We harvest a lot of these fly eggs uh, and then let the larvae hatch out over food waste uh, in a, yeah, again, a controlled environment, in tubs, inside a container, you know, inside a shed or a warehouse. uh, And then that's kind of where the magic happens. And it's just nature's way of nutrient recycling done on a commercial scale to deal with our commercial level of food waste, basically. Uh, And they just do their thing, eat the food, get nice and juicy and fat themselves. And uh, that is what becomes the protein product. And could someone accidentally leave the lid off the container and we'll have a fly plague in Broome? I mean, very low risk. Uh, They are already here as a species, Um, so there is a wild population in Broome, so there's no biosecurity risk associated with it. And they're not um, attracted to human habitation. Like I said, the adult flies don't actually eat. So the only reason you would ever see one is if it's hanging around your home compost bin or worm farm looking to lay its eggs if it's a female. Otherwise, they steer clear of humans. What is the potential, do you think, of, of fly farming for Northern Australia? Oh, I think it's massive. So uh, AgriFutures recently released a report uh, which was about catalyzing the Australian insect industry to a $10 million potential within five years. And in that report, the... Um, stated market potential for insect for feed is over $800 million. Uh, $27 million of that is aquaculture. And yeah, we've got growing aquaculture up 
industry up here so there's a lot of potential. So what are you proposing to feed them to? So uh, partnering with the Broome Aquaculture Centre to do some feeding trials for cherubin which are a native freshwater prawn mainly because we're really passionate about this being part of the local circular economy um, dealing with a local food waste issue and turning it into a local feed solution for another local industry. Uh, and then also there's a few other species we've got our eyes on, barramundi, prawns, crocodiles even, uh, that this could be used for. And what are you going to be feeding your flies in your pilot program? Uh, so feeding the larvae food waste. So starting in the pilot program with just commercial food waste, so restaurants, resorts, the hospital, places like that, uh, and then hopefully partnering with the Shire in the future to expand to domestic organic waste as well. And I have read that they can be used as human food. Have you ever tasted one? Uh, we have had a little trial run um, after we like boiled them, and I must admit they taste very nutty. Uh, unfortunately, they're quite thick-skinned, so there's a bit of a pop factor, which was quite unpleasant. Um, I would definitely uh, suggest turning them into a meal and integrating them into something on a much less uh, obvious scale. Kimberly, insect farmer Lauren Bell telling you and Ben Collins about her Waste Not Food Recycling Project in Broome. The State Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan says if this project is successful, it could be a model for organic waste management right across Australia's north. More on that story. It's online for you. There is a link on the ABC Rural Facebook page. And Susan has had her say in the comments underneath. She thinks this is a good idea as long as they keep their livestock contained within their property boundaries. This is the Country Hour. 11 minutes to one. So I wonder if these fly farms really can be a game changer for aquaculture projects in northern Australia. Dan Richards runs Australia's largest barramundi farm, which is at Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory. And to feed all the fish... The farm is currently importing six trailer loads of feed every week from a company in Brisbane. Matt Brand asked Dan if he'd be keen on feeding black soldier fly maggots to his barra. Look, I've certainly uh, you know, heard about the uh, you know, exciting potential of black soldier fly larvae uh, for you know, turning uh, waste into, into a protein product. So I think it's something that you know, fish would naturally eat. Uh, at the commercial scale that we operate as Australia's largest barramundi producer, uh, we tend to uh, use feeds that are already formulated, so they you know, they eat a balanced diet uh, that's made by an Australian feed company. But um, you know, we see there's certainly opportunities for you know insect protein to go into uh, commercial aquaculture feeds. So, what do you currently feed all the barra out there? So. Our barra eat a diet that's made from all natural products. Uh, barramundi are a little bit uh, omnivorous because they're, they've evolved in the uh, wetlands of northern Australia. So in the wild, they will eat insects. They will eat uh, you know, small mammals. They will eat fish and crustaceans. So they, a, they can eat a diet that's quite diverse uh, as opposed to something that just comes from fish. So in, a, in the normal commercial diet, there'll be a certain amount of uh, soy protein. There'll be a certain amount of uh, you know processing from chicken poultry processing, and and they need a certain amount of uh, fish meal and fish oil because fish don't actually make omega threes. Uh, they accumulate it from uh, out microalgae uh, out of the uh, marine environment. At the moment, you get all that feed brought into the territory, don't you? Correct. Yeah. So we're we're getting our feed across from uh, Ridley Aquafeed in uh, in Queensland. Have you ever looked at sourcing food, creating food in the territory? 
we, we've certainly looked at uh, different options over time. You know, it, it is a different, uh, a different art and science to, uh, to farming the animals. And uh, I think you need to get to the right scale where it starts to stack up. You know, we're, while we're quite large, uh, you know, the, the investment uh, in you know, setting up a, a commercial scale feed mill and, and then sourcing the other ingredients. So if you need other things that we don't make here, you've still got to bring them in from uh, around Australia and around the world. So it's uh, something that we, we've just focused on uh, becoming the best barramundi farmers that we can be rather than trying to solve every problem in the value chain. But, uh, yeah. but I think you know, in, insects certainly provide a, you know, a strong potential you know, to be put into those sort of feeds anyway. Dan Richards from Humpty Doo, Barramundi, 8 to 1. WA wool grower Neil Jackson says a digital wool selling system is a must for a modern industry and he's confident the WoolQ platform is here to stay. Now, WoolQ was developed by the industry's R&D and marketing body, Australian Wool Innovation. The Australian Wool Growers Association isn't convinced AWI should be involved in the selling of wool and is campaigning for AWI to sell it off. Neil Jackson farms at Cogenup, about three hours southeast of Perth, and produces about a 500 bale clip. He was also a member of the working group for the Wool Exchange Portal, which is now known as WoolQ. Neil, what is the future of WoolQ? Oh, look, I think it has a tremendous future. Belinda, the whole idea behind WoolQ was to bring it into the 21st century. I was obviously on the uh, Wool Exchange Portal working group. And one of the things that we studied were a lot of other industries from around the world that are using, using digital platforms. And to me, it's a must. If we're going to enter into the 21st century, be competitive, get our product out there without a digital platform, I think we're going to be pushing it uphill. I guess some of the key points that Robert Ingram from Australian Wool Growers Association was raising yesterday is that he just thinks the funding of this online platform WoolQ is outside the mandate of Australian Wool Innovations, the way it operates in terms of what it funds, and it's all about funding R&D and the marketing of wool, not so much the selling of wool. The point he's making, it's more about the marketing of the brand, I guess, and the fact that we've already got two online systems. What do you say to that? Oh, look, Linda, I think this fits AWI's job down to a T. Prior to the, the Wool Exchange portal or Wool Cube taking place, there was huge industry consultation with, there was a, a wool industry selling system review, which was chaired by a gentleman called Will Wilson, who I think has been in the media before and I think you've interviewed before. The wool selling system review was brought about because there was seen to be a need from growers and from AWI and from the industry that we did need to, to bring ourselves into the 21st century uh, digitally. Every other industry in the world is doing it of any significance and we just seem to be lagging behind. And if it was uh, an idea that wasn't taken up with IAWI, I doubt that it would have been taken up at all because the wool industry is not a huge export earner anymore in relation to the uh, you know Australia's export incomes. And you know if we were in the mining industry or we're in any other industry, I think a platform like this would have been developed privately. But um, I think AWI had to take it on board. Why is it then that it's been sort of slow to sort of catch on? Um, Stuart McCulloch from AWI was saying yesterday that since the trading platform was turned on, and that was only fairly recently during COVID, it's sort of in April, I think, was the turn on point, 1,400 bales have gone through the system. 
So, you know, it hasn't been flooded, I guess, with interest. What do you think the reason is behind that? 1,400 bucks is always going to be a slow uptake, I would have thought, Belinda. With COVID hitting, I think the opportunity to sell 1,400 bars was 1,400 bars more than we otherwise would have sold. There was always going to be a very staggered rollout with all the various sections that, that we'll approach and, and take on. And the marketing platform was only one that was only ever expected to be released about when it was. So we wouldn't have expected huge volumes to have been put through, I, I wouldn't have thought. Do you think, I mean, is it going to reach a point one day where that auction system, the open cry system, has completely disappeared and someday into the future that it will all be traded online? Oh, look, if that does happen, Belinda, I think it's going to be a very long time. But in saying that, you've only got to look at various other industries, the grain market. When we were looking at this Woolcube portal, um, we studied the flower market, which is based in Scandinavia, which is infinitely more complicated than the wool industry with flowers coming in from around the world and then marketed digitally to buyers online. So, look, the rate of technology is changing very quickly, and I'm a bit old and crusty these days, but the rate of adoption of technology in the last 10 years, I would have thought has been exponential relative to the previous 50 years, I would assume. I've been in this game for 40-odd years, and it's. Um, I think now we're getting to the stage where we can almost, through this type of technology, we're able to attract even young people into the industry where they can, you know, there is a... Uh, an avenue of, of digital marketing and forward sales and there's a uh, an information portal. There's all sorts of avenues on Woolcube that have only, haven't even scratched the surface of yet. So I just think as the younger generation come in and take it on board, I think the reliance on perhaps the auction system may diminish, but I think that will be a while. And I think realistically anyone else would say that that would be a while too. Cogenut wool grower, Neil Jackson. To the markets, and 8,670 sheep and lambs went through the system at Mushay today, so numbers up 2,400 on last week. John Testro's been at the sale. John, I hear the quality improved this week. Did that influence the prices? Young cattle were in demand from feeder buyers and backgrounders, with the lightweight weaner steers selling to a top of 466 cents. Lightweight weaner heifers topped at 394 cents a kilo. Heavy cows remained firm, selling to 280 cents, while the heavy bulls eased this week, selling to a high of 268 cents a kilo. A good selection of grown steers weighing between 500 and 600 kilos made 330 to 360 cents, to average 350 cents a kilo. Lighter weights sold for 316 to 384 cents to average 348 cents a kilo. The- well, that is not John Testro, is it? <laughs> and, um, pretty sure, I'm no expert here, but pretty sure Tracy Kilner's not talking about sheep in that report. So something in the system has gone a little bit astray, hasn't it? So at kind of a minute to one, I don't think we can perform any magic here and get the actual Mushay sheep market up for you today. So I apologise for that, but promise that this time tomorrow, running the details of the Mushay sheep market and also, fingers crossed, the details of the Catanning sheep market too. It may be the bye week in the AFL, but there's plenty of football on Grandstand this weekend. Catch the Perth Football League Grand Final between local rivals Scarborough and North Beach on Saturday. On Sunday, WAFL prelim final action as South Fremantle face West Perth for a spot in the Grand Final. Away towards a teammate in Knot, kicks to him in the goal square and Pierce will pop it through. Join us live on ABC Radio Perth, WA and Grandstand Digital. Number one for footy.
This text just through from Brenton. Why isn't Rocky Gully ever have its rainfall read out? There is an AWS there, and I'm from up, but have a farm down there. Well, no one's put up their hand at this point, Brenton, but maybe that's what you've just done, volunteered for the job. I look forward to those readings. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.